Voice of Islam Radio. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Today is Monday, the 4th of December 2023. The time is 7.03 a.m. and you're listening to Daniel Zia and Dr. Shakil Ahmed live from the South London studios of Voice of Islam. As is the norm, we have brought two topics for you today as well. And the first topic, which we shall start at 7.30 a.m., is about um, the uh, persons of disabilities. And we shall be celebrating the International Day of Persons of Disabilities, which was yesterday. And then in the second segment, which we shall start around 8.20 a.m. today, uh, we shall be talking about the welfare debate, um, especially around the cost of living crisis that we're all experiencing these days. And we shall focus on what is the Islamic solution to uh, that crisis. Um, those are the two topics. Please do join in, in this discussion. This is a live show. You can call us at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And on that note, Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you and a very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show, Dr. Ahmed. Assalamu alaikum and peace be on you too and all our listeners. Yes, um, let's... Um, uh, maybe talk about um, the busy weekend that um, uh, that you've had. Actually, you have uh, you and I have had, uh, and maybe um, before I go into the into the headlines. Um, so uh, we had this. Uh, we have this body called the consultative body within the um, auxiliary, which is the M the Muslims Muslim Elders Association. Um, uh, would you like to talk about what what this consult, consultative body is about? What is the function of this body? Um, how does this body actually, how is this created? Um, is it an elected body? Is it nominated? And then um, what, what's the function? What's the point? Right, yes. Um, in fact, the consultation body, which is also called the shura from the Arabic word consultation, um, exists in the primary Ahmadiyya movement of Islam, so right. in, in the Ahmadiyya movement. And this has been introduced historically. Uh, but then once the auxiliary organizations were made, which means younger men, Khudam, older men, Ansar and Lajna, which is the women's organization, 
they also have their own consultative bodies. The process is similar. The idea is to have a very democratic process of new ideas of how to reform the implementation of the Islamic teachings mm -hmm. and how to take them into an administrative perspective and then help the followers initially to self-reform and develop into better people, but also then to uh, strengthen the working of the organization, the Ahmadiyya movement and its different offices. The members of the consultative body are elected. So the, um, the Ahmadiyya movement is established in about 210 or more than 210 countries in the world. Right. And in every country where the organization is present uh, or established, they have uh, uh, localized sub units. So, for example, in UK, we have 145 local chapters. Chapters, right. Yes, that's the right word. And um, each chapter then elects a few members to nominate and go into the consultative body. This is an annual event, the consultation thing. So this last weekend, as you mentioned, was the shura or the consultation conference of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Older Male subgroup, yeah. auxiliary body, yeah. the Ansar. Um, it, it was a busy weekend, yeah. so uh, the, um, it usually begins with the uh, reporting of the decisions made from the previous year. Correct. So all the recommendations that had come out of the previous year, they were reported on, how much of it had been implemented, what had been the challenges, and of course there are, always are. Uh, then comes some kind of a reminder of the fundamental principles that we need to keep in mind when we are giving our opinions yeah. or um, doing our discussions. And we are constantly reminded that ultimately we should not have any of the biases in our mind, no friendships or uh, personal affiliations should be kept in mind and our focus should be that we need to give our opinion in an honest and straight way for whatever is beneficial for the humankind at large and for the working of the Ahmadiyya Muslim movement. Um, they, then they uh, form into subcommittees hmm. uh, and the subcommittees take on individual recommendations that had been brought on from the local chapters right. for discussion and detailed discussion. So the local chapters actually send the recommendations to the central body uh, to be discussed in this particular central conference. That is correct. In fact, the process of sending the recommendations is also very elaborate and goes through lots of self-checks. Mm. So any individual, for example, is uh, permitted to make a suggestion, a su subject for discussion. Correct. It is then discussed within the local chapter correct. and their executive body. Right. If accepted that it is an appropriate subject, it is then moved forward to the central executive. Mm. The central executive looks at it whether it is something that is just an administrative issue or it is something that requires a discussion, a detailed discussion at such a huge conference. This conference had about four to five hundred people. Yeah. Um, and once that is accepted, then it also has the scrutiny of the national executive. Hmm. And only then a subject is brought in for a discussion. Sure. 
So altogether, I understand that there were about 25 recommendations received from around the country, and there were four that were discussed in this conference. And just to give our listeners a, uh, uh, just a clue into, I mean, th- this four also took up all weekend, actually, uh, to discuss, because this is actually a very, it's a, it's a very inclusive, yet very thorough and, and very structured process. Very structured process. You are very right. Yes. And like you said, you and I were there and it takes a lot of your mental energy yes. because you're focusing on these subjects. And if you're allocated to one of the subcommittees, then you delve into that individual subject that's been given to you, your subcommittee for discussion. Right. And you can, you've can, you got to come up with an implementation plan. Now, howsoever long it may take, mm. uh, you begin, uh, for example, on Saturday when the subcommittee started, it was around four PM. Right. And they had to come up with some recommendations before 10.30 the following morning, whether it took them three hours or six hours, they would go deep into the night. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and by the grace of God, um, all the four committees did come up with very well-discussed recommendation plans. They are then brought on to the main house mm. and the main house, anyone else who's not been in the committee has the option of either criticizing them or make recommendations for amendments mm. or accept them, yes. uh, pick up some strengths or make some suggestions. Yeah. And that discussion took place on Sunday you, you, you're morning. Not allowed, sorry, uh, you're not allowed to be on the fence. You, you've, you've got to either accept it. Or, um, or or reject it or criticize it, but you can't be on the fence. You have to give your point of view and you have to be on, on, on one side or the other. Yes. You have to vote correct. In, in, in other ways. Yes, yeah, yeah. that is correct. If you do not accept it, you've got to say why you do not accept it. Correct, exactly. And then you've got to suggest an alternative yeah. as well. Yeah. So um, very thorough and I think a very uh, interesting example of a detailed, multi-stage democratic process. Yes. 100%. And and once these recommendations are agreed by this house, mm. then even then they do not become like the uh, modus operandi. Mm. They find they sent the approved recommendations are sent to the Khalifatul Masih, which is the spiritual head of the Ahmadiyya movement, Correct. and. Only he can then finally make the decision to accept this as the steps to go on for the following year or for the coming years. Correct. And and as you mentioned earlier, this is, you know, it's it starts at the very grassroots level. It starts right from the local chapter where uh, anybody can make any recommendation. Then it's discussed in that chapter. And uh, the, um, uh, the composition of the Central Council is also such that representatives are elected in the local chapters and those elected representatives are then sent into the central body which met over the weekend and then they discuss it so i mean yeah you're absolutely right it's a very democratic process it's a very structured process and i think it it just keeps uh, everybody number one honest and uh, number two i think very current also uh, in terms of looking at the current challenges, looking at uh, what best way, as you said, to to reform um, and and to come up with better ways and constantly improve. 
That, that's correct. Yes, that is the idea. Ultimately, it, we are a religious movement, yeah. and our primary focus is on self-reformation. <clears throat> so if I have some shortcomings in my personality or my ways of relating to people, that becomes my focus. Absolutely. You're 100% right, Dr. Shagil. We, we are a religious movement, but for... Uh, when I'm not doing the show, I'm actually working with corporates on on personal development, on leadership and management and, and, and those sort of skills. And I tell you that, you know, this is something which most of the corporates actually lack and and actually want to, uh, would love to have a process like this, which can actually keep them honest, keep them accountable and keep them improving all the time. Because that's the challenge in in most companies. They, you know, after a while, either complacency sets in, um, or inertia sets in, and and companies uh, and people stop improving, and companies stop imp- stop improving, and that's when you know companies go under. So, um, so you know, even from a very secular point of view, this is a, um, a highly robust process. Yes. Um this is a human challenge, to be honest. Um, we all succumb to psychological lethargy, you can call it. Mm. Using religious terminology, we succumb to satanic temptations. Mm. And using um, the, the language that you've used in terms of corporate development of their personnel, it's, it's uh, yet another step towards progress. Yeah and becoming more efficient. So this is the human challenge that we face. In fact, do you know the term that sometimes is misunderstood in the media, the Islamic term of jihad? The biggest jihad, according to the Holy Quran, is the efforts made in the line of self-reforming one's own character. Exactly. That's the primary jihad, the jihad-e-akbar. Right. So, and then come the secondary jihad of different nature. Yeah, which is also in defense, by the way, which is which is unfortunately taken over by the mullah and this uh, this concept, unfortunately, uh, misunderstood by some Muslims as well. I we have to admit, where it's uh, so it's it, the Islamic teaching is that even that jihad, which is a secondary jihad, has to be defensive in in nature as well. But the primary jihad, as you said, jihad akbar is the jihad of um, of uh, you'd say self reformation. I would also say self reformation, but in a more secular language, personal development. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. absolutely so, and 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 you know, um, uh, there are literally thousands, if not hundreds, of books written every year on on the subject of personal development. Uh, it's um, uh, you know uh, probably the most talked about subject on uh, the um, uh, on TED Talks. Probably, if you if you go to TED mm-hmm. Talks, so this is uh, you know uh, and. And coming back to what we were discussing, I mean, what what really amazes me is that um, the second caliph uh, of the community, you know, uh, almost, uh, what, about 80 years ago or, or, uh, yeah, probably 80 years ago, came up with this idea when nobody in the world was talking about personal development. Now everybody's talking about personal development. And everybody's talking about you know self formation becoming the best version of yourself and constantly improving and six sigma and you know all of those concepts uh, a lot of people are familiar with them but not 80 years ago and yet he thought of this this highly robust inclusive democratic yet structured process 80 years ago and and you know that then brings you to the to thinking that you know this has to be divine guidance 
this has to be divine guidance. What, what, how else can anybody um, think up something like this, some, a process so robust, a process so complete, that even the corporates of today would, um, uh, many of them would be ashamed to, to compare themselves with this process. This is so robust. It it reminds me of this um, debate of uh, in relation to existence of God. You know the atheistic perspective that somehow the concept of a belief in in a divine existence is an obsolete idea. People, when they did not understand science or were, the world was not developed, that they believed in these kind of theories. And as we have become modernized with our knowledge, that we do not need those concepts. Uh, on the contrary, if you study the history of mankind, whenever societies have in fact developed and become more just and peaceful and refined in all sorts of ways, whether we're talking financially or in terms of their business development or personal developments or even in terms of uh, producing more knowledge, they have in fact this has happened once a new prophet has come. Mm. And that shows up the divine influence on the human. Right. So the new prophet comes, brings fresh guidance to people in whichever part of the world that prophet may have come in history. Mm. And that is when the society reforms, develops, the crime rates reduce, peace uh, improves, people are happier. And then the prophet passes away, time passes, people start forgetting um, their uh, the original teachings of that religion that was brought by the prophet and ultimately start succumbing again to the human and the psychological temptations. And therefore, the uh, difficulties of social and all kind of difficulties, interpersonal difficulties, marital difficulties start emerging. Sure. And we believe that this process is in fact a continuum after the biological evolution that took place of life on Earth, mm. that once the human, the most intelligent species had evolved, mm. then the process of spiritual evolution was instigated, again, by the divine, by the creator, the intelligent creator who created this life and for a purpose. So the spiritual evolution began, of course, through the coming of the first prophet, Prophet Adam, peace be on him and then hundreds and thousands of prophets uh, including Moses and Jesus and uh, Abraham and Muhammad may peace be on all of them and and they brought increasingly more and more sophisticated divine guidance for societies mm. ultimately we believe that the Holy Quran is the most comprehensive divine guidance and it declares uh, God in this scripture declares that now my guidance to the mankind has been completed. Mm. So this is how we Muslims understand the Holy Quran, equally respectful of all the previous religions, prophets and their teachings and scriptures, but considering the Holy Quran as the most complete guidance for now. And 
scholars who are not Muslims, who've studied the Holy Quran, their commentaries show that how comprehensive the guidance from the Holy Quran is, whether you take political systems or economic systems or social systems or even inter-religious kind of uh, relationships and how multi-faith uh, secularism. In fact, secularism is very ingrained in the teachings of the Holy Quran. Right. All people have the freedom of conscience to believe in the religion they choose to believe. Right. No Muslim has the right to force religion on anybody else. Hmm. So th that's the um, concept of this uh, self-reformation that's been introduced by the divine, as you said. Um, a, a question that, uh, that I do not a topic for, um, uh, for a discussion, not a formal topic that we have chosen for a discussion today, I should say. But I guess a, a natural question that arises in my mind, and I'm sure uh, some of the listeners may be thinking about it as well, that if Holy Quran was complete, um, and it is indeed a complete guidance. What's the need for another prophet? Look, just like we've discussed, our at least from from a historical analysis, unless there is a human role model for people, it is difficult for people to just go by some kind of text. It is the same like saying, oh, there are so many books written on chemistry, on medicine. What's the role of universities and teachers and professors? Or, um, so this is, uh, in a spiritual level, our prophets are our teachers. So they demonstrate what it means to relate to God, how you can improve in your relationship to God, and then how it impacts your day-to-day -day life and your relationships with fellow human beings. Because after all, the purpose of religion is not just about a concept. It's about affecting our day-to-day -day behavior and how we relate as people to each other, whether we belong to the same religion or not. So that is the importance of a, of a prophet coming. And there have been prophets who brought new scriptures, mm. like Moses, may peace be on him, and then Muhammad, may peace be on him, uh, brought new scriptures and other prophets. Yeah. But then there have been subsidiary prophets yes. who come as uh, just to revive the original teachings. Right. Because, as we've discussed earlier, the following the passage of time of the original teaching, people had drifted away. Mm. So, and we, as Ahmadiyya Muslims, believe that the subsidiary prophet that had been prophesied by many various religions, all major religions. So the coming of the second coming of Lord Jesus uh, and establishing the kingdom of God on earth, uh, the second reincarnation of Krishna in Hindus, Buddha, the, the Buddha and, yeah. and Imam Mahdi in Islam, yeah. all major religions had prophesied the second coming of a latter-day prophet. Right. Um, and we believe that that prophet had also come in the personage of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, may peace be on him, and that he was the promised Messiah, the promised reformer, the Imam Mahdi. Sure. And I, and I guess like a, a, a natural answer to, to my own question perhaps is also that if there was no need for a prophet, then why is everybody waiting for a prophet? Why are Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and Jews and, and Christians waiting for a prophet? Absolutely. Yes. Right. Thank you very, very much uh, uh, for that, uh, Dr. Shaquille. Uh, that was very incisive, uh, that discussion, uh, as always with you. Right. Um, 
Let me quickly go through the headlines of uh, the papers uh, this morning, and and then we'll delve right into the first topic, which is about uh, disabilities and celebrating the Disabilities Day, which was um, yesterday, actually. So several of uh, Monday's papers carry stories on BBC's licence fee. So the Daily Mail is reporting that Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is asking the corporation to cut costs and speculation the government could limit the planned increase to the licence fee in April. The Prime Minister said all public organisations should cut their cloth during a difficult time for households. It is the same story on the front page of The Telegraph, which quotes Mr. Sunak is saying the BBC has to be realistic about what the public can afford. The paper says there is frustration from some BBC figures given the planned increase comes on the back of a two-year freeze. George and Amal Clooney are pictured on the red carpet in London in the paper as well. The Daily Mirror is reporting that Sakya Starmer is facing backlash to his article in the Sunday Telegraph where he credited Margaret Thatcher with bringing about meaningful change during her time as Prime Minister. He also praised former Labour Prime Ministers Tony Blair and Clement Attlee for the same reason, but the Mirror notes his quotes about Baroness Thatcher will be seen as a bid to win over Conservative voters. Sakir later defended his article, telling the BBC he had wanted to stress her sense of purpose, but it did not mean he agreed with her. The Labour leader is also the main story on the front page of The Guardian, which looks to a speech he will give to the left-wing think tank, the Resolution Foundation, on Monday. Sakir will say Labour will not turn on the spending taps if it wins the next general election, sparking fears from some that he is preparing to sign up to public sector cuts. Also looking ahead to the, to the next general election, the Daily Express carries an interview with the new Tory chairman. The paper says Richard Holden refused to be downbeat about the party's prospects, insisting a fifth term is within our grasp. The Conservatives are currently trailing in the polls. The main story in The Times focuses on the cost of Britain's weight problem. The paper says the economy is playing a heavy price that is $100 billion and will scupper Mr. Sunak's plans to get the sick back to work. Baroness Kinnock of Holyhead, who has died aged 79, is also pictured on the front page. Um, and finally, um, the Sun reports that the bosses at Rail Union Aslaf held a Christmas party on the same day it began a week of industrial action. The paper describes it as a Christmas knees-up insult. So those were the headlines appearing in the major newspapers this morning. A reminder of the two topics. So the first one, which we shall start um, in about two minutes' time, is the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. And the second topic, which we shall start at 8.20 a.m., is about the discussion on welfare, on uh, welfare cuts, uh, on what should be allowed in a welfare state, what should be given in a welfare state, what are the people's rights, and what's the Islamic solution. So those are the two topics. Please do join us by calling us at 0208-687-7878. You can always tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. A quick break. And when we come back, we will delve right into the first topic, which is about the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. Do stay tuned. Allah. 
akbar Allahu akbar Allahu akbar Ashhadu an la listening to the voice of islam radio Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. You're listening to Dani Alza and Dr. Shakil Ahmed. And we're about to delve into the first topic, which is about the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. So December 3rd marked that day. That is the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. The observance, the observance of the day aims at promoting an understanding of disability issues and mobilizing support of uh, for the dignity rights and well-being of persons with disabilities it also seeks to increase awareness of gains to be derived from the integration of persons with disabilities in every aspect of political social economic and cultural life so what is the international day of persons with disabilities and what's the significance really so this international day or of of persons with disabilities or idpd for short is an annual observance established by the united nations general assembly back in 1992 this year it was held on sunday the 3rd of december which was yesterday this day focuses on understanding and supporting people with disabilities it aims to make people more aware of the challenges faced by those with disabilities and to promote their rights and well-being in all aspects of life this could be in aspects of political social economic and cultural life the significance of the international day of persons with disabilities lies in its role as a platform to advocate for the rights and inclusion of persons with disabilities on a global scale did you know that 1 billion people with disabilities worldwide um live and a strag- staggering 80% reside 80% of them reside actually in the developing countries furthermore approximately 46% of individuals aged 60 and above are people with disabilities it's also crucial to recognize that one in every five women is likely to experience a disability in their lifetime and one in every 10 when ch- one in every 10 children face the challenge of disability from a young age these statistics underscore the diverse nature of disability and the need for inclusive and accessible solutions therefore the significance of this day becomes evident when considering that it serves as a global advocacy platform to draw attention to the rights and needs of people with disabilities worldwide this collective effort aims to foster understanding and support for this diverse group of people so that's the the topic that we shall be uh, discussing today as um, uh, or discussing um, in the first uh, sort of 45 minutes of this show um the number to call is 70 uh, 0 um 
0208 Apologies for that. I shouldn't forget that number. Um, and um, as I talked about, um, as I mentioned earlier, this will be a packed show. We've got a, a lot of guests uh, who are uh, participating in this discussion. And the first guest um, on the line with me right now is Mr. Daniel Goodley. Um, Professor Daniel Goodley is a leading figure in disability studies at the University of Sheffield. He has extensive experience as a leading scholar spearheading impactful projects. Notably, his work includes humanizing healthcare for people with with learning disabilities and autism, generously funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show, Professor Goodley. Good morning. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. Goodley, for joining us. Let me uh, start off by asking... um, You've obviously had very wide experience um, in this. You've you've written. Um, tell us uh, how I, I've given some figures out. Uh, you know, in terms of the people affected with disabilities globally. How relevant is this topic um, today in 2023? Yeah. Well, thank you for the opportunity to talk, and uh, yeah, I'll celebrate also the International Day for people with disabilities? Um, It's a great question. So I think one of the ways we could tackle that is by considering ourselves as either disabled people or what's sometimes called being temporarily able-bodied. So at some point, all of us are gonna come into contact with disability, with aging or what have you, but also many of us have uh, experienced disability through our families and through our friends. So I think that disability is a concern for everybody. I think sometimes um, people might need a a hand, a helping hand in recognizing the significance of disability to kind of wider life. And I suppose um, another way to think about it is to consider the recent pandemic uh, and how the pandemic disproportionately impacted upon disabled people. So in the UK, 60% of deaths during COVID were disabled people and many of those were folk from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. So I think a number of uh, happenings, a number of events have made disability a significant issue for all of us to think about. One being that it's very much part of our family lives, our everyday lives. And also when we're uh, hit with a shock like the pandemic, we recognize that disabled people uh, occupy particularly marginalized uh, status within wider society. Professor Goodley, we know that you've had interest in the emotional impact of COVID-19 on people with disabilities. Can you share something about that with us? Yes, so I work, I'm lucky enough to work uh, as a researcher at the University of Sheffield with a number of other colleagues, uh, and I've been researching the area of disability for a number of years. And the way we do research there is we don't just do it as researchers, we do it in collaboration with disabled people. So what we try to do is to focus on the concerns, the aspirations, the ambitions of disabled people and work with them collectively to identify how we can challenge those. And I think what came about in the pandemic was a form of kind of um, almost like a, a form of apartheid in the sense that disabled people were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. And in some cases, sometimes during, during uh, the pandemic, um, the, the lives of disabled people were actually ignored. 
Uh, and we can talk about, for example, the way in which we move towards lockdown and the ways in which that relied upon particular kinds of independence that many people, disabled and non-disabled, don't have. So my interest in uh, the impact of, of COVID-19 on disabled people builds upon this kind of long um, time of, of, of carrying out research in collaboration with disabled people. But there's also this kind of real sense of injustice of unfairness that came about through the pandemic. Right. And building on that, your paper dives into fragility and anxiety and affirmation as key themes. So can you help our listeners understand this impact a little bit further from your experience? Yeah. So in this paper that we wrote for a journal called Sociology of Health and Illness, um, what we do in that paper is to draw upon a project that we carried out during lockdown. So if you think back, and many of us don't really want to think back to those dreadful times, but during lockdown, one of the things we wanted to do was to collate the stories of disabled people, disabled people's families, and also disabled people's organisations to get a sense of how they were dealing with the pandemic and three kind of key themes emerged. The first is fragility. Uh, and the way we might want to think about fragility is to think about uh, how our healthcare systems were under strain. And during, uh, as they were becoming under strain, then various um, healthcare systems across the world engaged in a process of what we might call rationalization. In short, decisions were made about who to save and who not to save. And so what happened is that disabled people, alongside uh, other uh, groups of uh, people around the world, were placed in a particularly precarious role. So, for example, as we went into lockdown, people lost access to kind of key social networks. Uh, people weren't visiting, their support workers were not coming around. And quite brutally, these healthcare systems were making decisions, like I said earlier, about who to save and who not to save. And it's important to, to recognise here, by the way, that disabled people often occupy a fragile space in, uh, or a fragile place in society, not because of something wrong with them, but because of the ways in which uh, systems are not set up to support disabled people. And in fact, uh, one of the stories we collected uh, during um, at this work we were doing for this blog and our website, which has collected these stories of disabled people during lockdown, was from uh, a disabled activist who talks about receiving a letter from a local GP outlining her health status as shifting overnight from a proud disabled person to being a recognised vulnerable member of society. So, if you like, one way to think of the pandemic is it's a moment in time that magnifies already existing inequalities uh, that many disabled people experience. Uh, the second theme, anxiety, is something I assume many of your listeners will be very familiar with. We all felt very anxious during the pandemic. You know, all of us felt there was this incredible feeling of uncertainty. That's right. That we all went through every day, right? But if you're a disabled person, where your um, very status as a human being worth saving is under threat, then you can well imagine that the anxiety that you would feel as a disabled person was actually magnified. And indeed, we had um, one, one story we collected from a disabled colleague in Nepal who talked about 
uh, COVID-19, not just as a health pandemic, but actually as a humanity threat, as a threat to their very existence. They felt that they were, you know, facing this kind of crisis of their own humanity. But what I don't want to do this morning is to leave your listeners uh, to feel negative with this. The third thing we found was affirmation. What actually happened is that disabled people, their families, their friends, their fellow activists connected. And they connected, uh, as we all did, often online, through various kind of online support networks. And we saw during the pandemic some incredible examples of affiliation and solidarity that took place predominantly through the online kind of world whereby people reminded themselves that they were not alone. Now, the, the, the other thing to recognise about this kind of online affirmation is you have to have the material, um, the materiality, if you like, to be able to access the online world. And so those people who are experiencing, for example, digital exclusion, they couldn't actually access the online, didn't feel this kind of affirmative support. Fortunately, many people are plugged into the internet. And so what we saw, I would suggest, during the pandemic was a a reaffirmation of what might be broadly called disability politics. That's very helpful insight, Professor Goodley. Um, Moving on to a slightly different subject, Um, your research project emphasizing the humanization of healthcare. Can you please shed some light on that too? Thank you. Yeah. So it's the International Day that recognises the rights uh, and the humanities of disabled people is what we're talking about today. Then this project that we have funded by the Economic and Social Research Council is, uh, I suppose, trying to do something a little different in research. So um, sometimes researchers, particularly researchers in my own field of uh, social science, are accused of finding out the failings in the world. So, you know, uh, researchers are really good at identifying what is wrong with society and, quite frankly, banging on about it uh, through a variety of means, whether it be through writing or through their own kind of teaching, what have you. We want to do something different with our research. We want to, if you like, look at the good stuff, to look at those examples, in this case of healthcare, whereby disabled people and here specifically we're talking about people with learning disabilities how they are humanized through their healthcare experiences so uh, we have a a group of researchers we have researchers who are clinicians these are medics we have researchers who are social scientists like myself and also and i'd say most importantly we have researchers with learning disabilities so people with learning disabilities who themselves are researchers and we're working together in this collaboration to, to collect stories from healthcare, from medical practice, from those moments where patients encounter practitioners to find out how uh, healthcare can truly humanize. And I just want to pick up on, say, three kind of commonly heard words within healthcare, if you like, when it's going well, the good stuff. So the first one is the idea of being person centered. This is healthcare where people are treated with dignity and respect, treated as a person. And you might think, well, isn't that all, you know, healthcare shorter than it's? The truth is, if you're a disabled person, there's always a danger that the healthcare practitioner treats your disability rather than you as a person, you know, a fully paid up member of humanity. So you want to kind of consider this idea of person 
and, and to understand what kind of people that healthcare practitioners have in mind when they encounter their patients. A second way we might want to think about healthcare is to think about compassion. So I think all of us would want our healthcare practitioners to be compassionate. So, but if we like kind of drill down a little bit into this idea of compassion, um, classically compassion is to feel the suffering of another. And of course we would want, for example, our GPs to, to feel the suffering we might have when we have some kind of medical problem. But too often disabled people are reacted to as if they are suffering because of their disability. And this is a problem because, you know, having a disability does not equate with being ill. You could be dis a disabled, healthy person, right? So we want to consider how compassion is working. And, and one of our feelings sometimes is that compassion is working in a quite problematic way. That is to say that practitioners are feeling the suffering of another's disability when actually there should not be this kind of equation of suffering with disability. And then the third, uh, which we're hoping to kind of really develop further, is the idea of humanization. And to humanize somebody is to truly recognize their humanity, but also to affirm and celebrate it. So on a day like today, or as it was yesterday, uh, to celebrate the disabled people, we would want to ask, in what ways does healthcare truly sit with disabled people as fellow human beings and treat them as equals? And sadly, we think there's a lot of work to do. We know that um, healthcare systems are stretched. We know that there are various kind of funding debates around the, the National Health Service. And too often we worry that when healthcare becomes rationed, when it becomes part of a market economy, then people suffer. And some of those first people to suffer will be disabled patients. Um, very admirable um, service to humanity, your work, Professor Goodley, and it really touches uh, me when I listen to you, and I'm sure our listeners too. Um, and I can say that I, I've worked as a doctor in the health service for over 30 years now, mm -hmm. and these concepts about person-centered or compassion or humanizing the, the experience of the people who come there because a person goes to a health service when they're suffering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so by definition, even if they do not have a disability, although our focus of discussion today is on people with disabilities, but any person who goes to the health service is suffering in one way or another. And um, the, there has been, like you say, because of internal market economy or because of uh, competition between different organizations, between NHS and private healthcare. So it, it's become more of a business style uh, health service rather than something based on the kind of principles that you're describing. But I want to um, hear from you also on another subject um, you one of your books disability and other human questions mm -hmm. it also touches on similar themes so can you tell us a little bit more about that too please yeah and, and thank you for giving me your own kind of personal take upon it the book um that you talk about there is was it's a very personal book and it's it's one that i wrote which was reflected on like saying like nearly three decades of research and and actually, one of the things I wanted to do in that was to uh, raise some questions with myself about my own role within 
the field of disability research. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm a temporarily able-bodied person, or some people would say a non-disabled person. And I think the first question that people like me have to ask is where do we sit as non-disabled people in relation to the question of the politics of disability? And I think one of the, the dangers, if you look historically back at knowledge about disability, the, kind of the big knowledge is medicine, for example, or psychology, is that a lot of that knowledge has been written by non-disabled folk you know, non-disabled medics or non-disabled psychologists. And of course, if you think about that, what's curious about it is that that's clearly a problem already. That, you know, this subject of disability, if the kind of key experts in that kind of study of disability are non-disabled, then I think we have a problem. So one of the things I wanted to do in that book, Disability and Other Human Questions, uh, was a number of things. I just mentioned two. One is to really kind of shine well magnify debates around the role of non-disabled people in relation to disability and for people like myself non-disabled folk to really take seriously their own privilege as non-disabled people to really question the ways in which we could be the problem in uh, the lives of disabled people and one of the kind of key problems for non-disabled folk is they don't attend carefully enough to the ideas about disability that are emanating from the disability community, whether that be disability arts or disability politics, disability comedy, whatever it might be. We, we often do not take seriously enough the kind of knowledge that comes from disabled people and their organisations. So that's kind of the first thing I wanted that, that book to do. And I think the second was to, to raise that question about where disability sits alongside the question of the human. Clearly, disabled people are human beings, right? No one's saying anything else. But when we're hit with a pandemic that actually places disabled people outside of considerations or the rationalisation of healthcare, we're doing something really quite incredibly demeaning. We are suggesting, actually, that disabled people are not human beings enough to treat, to attend to and to support. And I think um, right now, this you know, 2023, we need to recognise that too often disabled people are considered as second-class citizens. That disabled people are often the last to be included in, for example, conversations about diversity and inclusion. And this, I think, is a, is a tragedy. Not just a tragedy to disabled people, but to society as a whole. Because quite simply... If one attends and listens carefully enough to the ideas that are coming from the disability community, one will actually find a whole host of opportunities, of possibilities, of ways of being together in the world, which are actually very, very profound. They're very exciting. They're very innovative and they're very entrepreneurial. So, yeah, I think that was what that book was trying to do, was to, to sit with the, the problem of people like me, non-disabled folk, and also, secondly, to kind of really, uh, hopefully, in a kind of uh, provocative way, uh, consider the very question of humanity through the subject of disability. 
Um, once again, Professor, I, I really appreciate the efforts that you're putting into this. Um, so thank you very much for coming on to our breakfast show on the Voice of Islam radio this morning. Uh, and a lot of thanks, and not just for your time today, but also for the work that you're doing for uh, people at large and particularly people with disabilities. It's been very nice to hear your thoughts. Thank you and may peace be on you. Thank you. What an excellent interview there. Um, and and uh, such a knowledgeable person on, on the subject we're talking about. That's right. And also uh, look at the beautiful work yeah, Professor is trying to do um, for the betterment mm. of the people with disabilities. Mm. And some of the themes that he's touched on, for example, uh, the um, suffering of the disabled during the COVID and how must these people have felt when they were considered as less likely to be saved in comparison to somebody who didn't have disability. Now, imagine yourself in that situation. Absolutely. And they are very important themes, and this is huge service to mankind. Absolutely. 100%. And you're absolutely right. And I, I remember how difficult time COVID was for all of us. And, and uh, you know, he's absolutely right when he says that you, can, you have to amplify that many times for a person who has uh, other issues to deal with as well. And, and, and then, you know, there was, um, there was COVID. Right. Um, and yeah, this is really amazing bit of work that uh, that he's doing. So yeah, our thanks and uh, uh, heartful thanks uh, to him actually, and and, and thanks also uh, uh, for to him for joining us this morning. Right, um, we are talking about um, uh, persons with disabilities um, uh, in connection with the International Day of Persons with Disabilities, which was uh, yesterday, Sunday, the third of December. 2023. Uh, we've just spoken to um, Professor Daniel Goodley, who is a leading figure in disability studies uh, at the University of uh, Sheffield, and he has extensive experience, as he certainly showed in that talk right now. Uh, we shall now take a, a very quick break, and um, uh, when we come back, we will continue this discussion on uh, on the person with disabilities and we shall carry this discussion until um, about uh, 8.15 onwards. And after that, we will talk about the second topic, which is um, around the welfare cuts and the Islamic solution um, around the whole welf welfare debate. What, what should be done? What the state, what, is, what are the responsibilities of a state uh, when it comes to Islam and what uh, an actual Islamic state really looks like or should look like when it comes to helping people um, in that state. So those, um, uh, so that will be the second topic. And we're currently discussing uh, persons with uh, disabilities. We are now coming up to the news, so we will take a break um, for that. And when we come back, as I mentioned, we will continue this discussion on persons with disabilities. Please do join in by calling us at 0208-687-7878. You can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Do stay tuned.
Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah listening to the voice of islam radio la ilaha illallah muhammadur rasulullah so for for me in 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 my life what i did was i said to um it came to a point in my life where i said I need spirituality. Right. I need to know about, there must be more to life than just working, getting up in the morning, going to work at nine o'clock, coming home at five o'clock, going to bed, waking up the next day and doing the same thing over and over again. There must be more to life than just eating food and taking pleasure from a meal. Sure. There must be more to life than drinking a latte yeah. and taking pleasure in a latte. Yeah. And all of these thoughts take you towards spirituality. And when you know spirituality, that is to come to Allah. So, so that was how it started. But then what really, you know, practically for me, what happened was, I said to the, the various friends that I had at the time, you know, I believe in, I want to know about God, yeah. whether or not God exists. What would you advise me? So I spoke to a Christian, right. I spoke to a Buddhist, I spoke to a Muslim, I spoke to a... Hindu. A Hindu, a little bit, yeah. and also to an Ahmadi Muslim as well. Right. And they all right. gave me the same advice. They all said, Allah... We believe in God, we pray, and God answers prayers. Sure. So what was very nice is all the different religions essentially gave the same advice. Right. When I did that, then when I prayed, then Allah answered my prayers. Right. And I prayed for the first time genuinely from my heart. And Allah says that whenever the supplicant prays to him, then he answers those prayers. Yeah. And Allah, by the, grace of, by the grace of Allah Almighty, then He answered my prayers and I believed in Him for the first time. And from there I continued those conversations and I said to the Christian, what do you believe? I said to the Muslim, what do you believe? And to the Hindu the same, and to the Ahmadi Muslim. And essentially to believe in Islam Ahmadiyat means you believe in all of Jesus' teachings, all of Krishna's teachings, all of Buddha's teachings, but you have them clarified by the Holy Quran right. and then you accept the Prophet or the Imam Mahdi who's been sent by Allah in, in subservience to the Holy Prophet right. So to, to become an Ahmadi Muslim means that you actually accept everything that all of the others do but you are the most submissive to Allah because you accept a Prophet that has come so recently that to make that decision shows or inshallah it shows to Allah that I'm willing to follow you and not just my culture, not just my society you're listening to the voice of islam radio broadcasting on dab and via the internet 24 hours a day Assalamu alaikum. 
Peace be with you. Welcome back to this live edition of The Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. You're listening to Daniel Zia and Dr. Shakil Ahmed. Today is Monday, the 4th of December. And this morning we're talking about the focus of our discussion today is uh, persons with disabilities. And uh, before we went on to the news break, we were talking to Professor Daniel Goodley, who is a professor uh, at the University of Sheffield. Let me now go straight to our second guest for this morning, who is Warren Kirvin. And Warren is the media manager at Disability Equality Charity, Scope. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Morning, Warren. Uh, really pleased to have you. Um, tell us about the significance of the International Day of People with Disabilities and uh, how this uh, helps with creating awareness around the issue, as well as maybe some of the events that may be taking place today. Yeah, the day is about promoting the rights and well-being of disabled people at every level of, of society um, and development to raise awareness of the situation of people in all aspects of their lives, political, social, economic, uh, cultural. And it's a really good marker in the in, in the calendar to say, look, this is this, the one in five of us are disabled. Disabled people are our friends, our colleagues, our, our parents, are the people we go to school with, the people we work with. And actually, on some level, disabled people are doing a lot of great things up and down the country. But on other level, things can be quite tough for disabled people. And it's worth recognising um, recognizing that, as, that as well. At Scope, we will be amplifying the voices and have amplified the voices of disabled people and some of our campaigners have been calling on the government to kind of improve things. Um, but it's also just a good opportunity for, to, 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 for disabled people to get their voices out there. Somebody we work with very closely, Sophie Morgan, uh, was out talking about her rights on flights campaign. She's a wheelchair user and uh, too many aircraft, I, I keep, uh, airlines keep breaking a wheelchair when she, when she flies and she's got a campaign out to try and stop that. So it brings attention to those kind of, um, those kind of issues uh, up and down, up and down the country. Thank you for that introduction. And um, recently, we've had the autumn budget statement by the Chancellor. How do you see these changes in welfare affecting the people with disabilities? Well, I think those changes that came through in the autumn statement, I think they were kind of they, the, the Chancellor doubled down on a plan that will ramp up sanctions and kind of demonise disabled people. It was a, for us, it was a real missed opportunity. So th th they're going to tighten up some of the criteria around the work capability assessment. That will move over a number of years some people out of a group where they don't face sanctions and are not expected to, to find work um, into a group where it will they'll lose about a hundred pounds. Um, a week um, they would they wouldn't have to apply for work but if they don't do some of the preparation for work people could face sanctions in that group so it's a and this will be people with kind of mental health conditions and people who might be at risk of of injury so it is quite a it is quite a significant change nothing happens to 2025 um, and it will take a number of years and it will only happen then to new claimants but that that some of those changes are quite quite significant over 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 a period of time. We think it was a real missed opportunity, you know, to to, to set out how the same people can thrive. We kind of think the government is 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 kind of bent on 
reducing the, the benefits budget. But, you know, like at this present moment in time, inflation's high, prices are rising, you know, disabled people are still facing sky high bills and they're struggling to make ends ends meet. So we we want to see the, the government looking at how it can get more disabled people to work. How can it work with the, how can health, education, um, the the business kind of side arm of government, how can they all work together to get more disabled people to work rather than kind of ramping up sanctions, looking to reduce the welfare bill, and just making things harder for disabled people to thrive. So this charity organisation Scope, we are aware that it's actually trying to influence the government to look into the interests of the people with disabilities. Are you hopeful? Well, you've always got to be hopeful the government will, will listen to you. At this present moment in time, we're calling on the government to reduce a energy social tariff. That's a, a kind of reduced rate for, the, for, for a unit of energy that say people use, just because life costs so much more if you're disabled. And, and a lot of say people have no choice but to use more energy. So we've been talking to people who are using candles, instead of putting the light on, they've been skipping meals, taking cold showers. We've talked to, spoken to one family whose bills are £6,000 a year. And a reduced energy tariff w- would really help with that. We already have similar schemes for people on low incomes, for, for broadband and for something similar uh, for, for, for water. So these um, these schemes and that way of thinking about of supporting disabled people works and it's there already and we want the government to look into introducing a social energy tariff. Right. And the, the concepts of inclusion and representation, I understand that they are very key to the efforts you make for the rights of uh, the people with disabilities. Um, can you shed a little bit more light on these concepts and your efforts in this direction? Yeah, sure. So, and, the, and today, the International Day of Disabled People, we will be talking about uh, like Asian and ethnic minority disabled people, how they're really underrepresented on our on our screens. A couple of people who work with really closely, um, Shani Danda, who is recently just been named by the Shaw Trust as the country's most influential disabled person, and someone called Fats Timbo, who describes is a black woman who describes herself as a little person and has about 2.9 million followers on TikTok. They will be talking about um, they will be talking about kind of representation and attitudes towards them and the difference it makes to to their lives. So we did a bit of work a few um, a few months ago. We found that three in four disabled people have experienced negative attitudes and behaviour over the last kind of five years. That includes kind of verbal and physical abuse. And when people feel negative attitudes, they're left feeling isolated, lonely, and younger people in particular are over twice as likely to stop socialising as a, as a result of experiencing poor attitudes. So it's really important that uh, we recognise this as an issue and we have more disabled people on our screens, on TV, because familiarity is one of the best ways to break down barriers. Mm, that's an interesting concept. And we occasionally do come across some people with disabilities on the screen, either presenting or hosting a show, but it's not as common as I think you you are trying to promote. Is that correct? That's, uh, that's absolutely right. There are 16 million disabled people in this country. That's kind of one in five of us. And at the moment, it looks like there are 
on the screen or on major kind of broadcasters, there's only about only about eight percent of on street uh, of contributions are made by disabled people, and that is even fewer for black, Asian, and ethnic minority disabled people. So the, the, there's a lot of work to do for, from the broadcasters, and I think from, from government, I think would like I think they should kind of run a a campaign on attitudes towards disability at some stage. They were thinking about it a while, uh, a while ago, and we could really kind of shift the dial and get us all more familiar with disability, disabled people, and some of the issues that affect disabled people in their lives. Right. Now, uh, I was thinking that, yes, uh, of course, we need to help support the people with disabilities get back into the mainstream life for employment, for their rights, for social inclusion. But let's uh, say if there was an employer who would counter-argue that they need to look at the productivity, uh, how would you, your organization, help such employers think that people with disabilities can be as effective and as productive as a person without a disability? Oh, we generally work with employers. And we need to kind of, um, and most, and understand that disabled people, and I work with disabled people all day, every day, are just as productive and as dynamic and as creative as as anyone else. Um, our chair is a guy called Robin Miller, who is who runs a a, a music publishing business and has been in the, very successful in the music industry for, for years. Quite often, a lot of disabled people are really creative. They've had to work harder to get where they are. They've had to kind of work around a lot, a lot of issues. So that kind of productivity thing is is one of the things that kind of needs to be um, addressed. We we find that when we work with disabled people, we have a lot of uh, employment services where we give people the individual tailored and flexible support they kind of need to kind of get into get into work, stay in work, and and thrive in work so what employers should think about is what disabled people can do rather than what they can't do there's also a government fund called access to work out there so some workplaces might need some minor adjustments here and there there's a government fund that will pay for that so there'll be no um there's no added cost there to the, to, to the employer so it's really the opportunity is there for employers to work with disabled people there are a million disabled people in this country who want to work but deny the opportunity. And it's up to employers and it's up to the people who give the kind of back-to-work support, like, like we, like Scope does, like the government does, to kind of get that right and make sure that disabled people are an integral part of our society. Absolutely. Uh, Mr. Warren Kerwin, thank you very much for your insightful and helpful conversation with us and your time that you gave to the breakfast show today on The Voice of Islam Radio. Uh, may God bless you and peace be on you. Thank you. So that was uh, Mr. Warren Kerwin, the media manager at Disability Quality Charity by the name of Scope. Right, and very interesting discussion there as well. Right, so uh, coming towards the end of this topic now, um, it's um, we're coming up to almost uh, 8.15. Um, it, let's maybe have a very brief discussion on what, uh, what does an Islamic society teach us about treating people with any sort of disabilities who are at any sort of disadvantage? 
Well, um, the first thing that I would say is that one of the titles for the founding prophet of Islam, Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be on him, um, is Rahmatulil Alameen. Now, this means that someone whose mercy for all the worlds and all types of existence and creation. And there are several examples from his life and his uh, followers or companions that demonstrated how important they felt was to look after in a very compassionate way, but supportive way as well to people who may have any kind of disability. So I um, can share with you one or two incidences. Uh, one of the companions of the Holy Prophet, Muhammad, peace be on him, was Hazrat Bilal. Uh, may Allah be pleased with him. Right. And he was asked by the Prophet, peace be on him, to say the call to the prayer. You know, the azan, the now the commonly known call to prayer. Mm-hmm. And he came from North Africa. His pronunciation of Arabic was different. He could not pronounce the word Ashhadu and La ilaha. And he pronounced it in a slightly different way. Um, and some of the other companions kind of bemu- were bemused when he called out for the prayer. Yeah. But the Prophet said that, look, you are finding this amusing mm. for you, but you need to look at the intention of the person and his voice reaches the heavens and God will be pleased with him, mm. with the sincerity that he's doing his job or his task that has been allocated to him. Right. So the point being that in fact, it's the sincerity of the person and the effort they put in that counts a lot more. This was the lesson that the Prophet, may peace be on him, was giving us. And it's similar to the point made by Mr. Kerwin, that they encourage the employers to look at what the people with disability can do rather than what they cannot do. And I think that's a very interesting one. The other interesting incidence is from the life of the first rightly guided caliph, the successor to the Prophet Muhammad. His name was Abu Bakr, may Allah be pleased with him. Mm. And he was informed of a person who lived alone in the outskirts of Medina and was blind and also had some other disability. And when Hazrat Abu Bakr knew that this person has lost his family member who was the source of income as well as for his uh, day-to-day care, he took it upon himself personally as the Khalifa, as the head of state um, and the head of the Muslim community at the time in, in Medina, but he would go daily, walk to the dwelling of this person, feed this person, and look after his essential needs, leave some other things for him that he may need for the later part of the day, and then do the same thing the following day. And he mm-hmm. kept on doing it for as long as this Khalifa lived. Right. Now, interestingly, people say that when Hazrat Abu Bakr passed away, right. and the time of the second caliph came, he knew that Hazrat Abu Bakr goes somewhere in that direction every day, but he did <laughs> not exactly know why. Yeah. 
So he asked some of the other companions, what was this about? Mm. And they said that there is an old man who lived there and he mm. needed help and therefore Hazrat Abu Bakr was doing it on a daily basis. And Hazrat Umar, now the next Khalifa, the mm. second successor of the Prophet, um, wanted to carry on the same good <laughs> task. And he went there, he took mm. the food for this man, mm. left it for him, and believing that this person's almost completely blind, would not know the difference and wasn't sure whether he should tell them that I am a different mm. person. But this man volunteered that you're not, you're not Abu Bakr. Yeah. And Hazrat Umar was a little bit startled as to how did he find out mm. that I'm not him, I brought food for him, mm. the same food that Hazrat Abu Bakr was bringing at the same time. Right. And he said that, look, when Abu Bakr used to come, he used to feed me morsel by morsel into <laughs> my mouth. <laughs> And it's such a touching and beautiful wow. uh, uh, example of how even such senior khulafa, uh, the, the leaders of Islam, mm. uh, were looking after the people with disabilities in their own lives. Mm. So that is the Islamic teaching yeah, exactly. about people. That this sums is, it up so well. Yeah. Thank you. No, no, absolutely. That was the, such an amazing example and such a such a beautiful example. Right. And uh, uh, with that, we will um, bring this topic um, to an end. We will now take a quick break. And when we come back, we will delve right into the second topic, which is about, very related actually, about the, the rights of people within a welfare state. And what uh, does Islam say about that? What sort of solution does Islam present around that? So um, we shall be back to discuss that right after quick break. Do stay tuned. Allahu Akbar Allahu Akbar أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن محمدا Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back to this live edition of the Breakfast Show from South London Studios of Voice of Islam. You're listening to Dani Azhar and Dr. Shakil Ahmed, and we're about to delve into the second topic, which is about welfare and the welfare of the people. Um, uh, in a state. So this discussion um, is around actually the welfare cuts which have been planned here in the UK from 2025 and when tens of thousands of people will face these cuts and that would save about four billion pounds from the welfare budget. So according to um, uh, this BBC article, um, these plans have been drawn up by ministers and um, 
uh, and the proposal would see many more people forced to find work despite suffering from a range of physical and mental health conditions. The, de- the Department for sorry, the Department for Work and Pension said reform would be gradual. The proposals follow the announcement in March that the government wants to scrap the controversial work capability assessment, which is used to determine if people can receive additional benefits payments due to a health condition. Eligible payments currently receive £390 a month on top of their universal credit payments. If these proposals are enacted, people who, for instance, are in severe pain while awaiting an operation or have some mental health conditions such as depression and anxiety may not receive the additional payment but would be expected to look for work instead. Joining me now to discuss this um, all-important topic is Rebecca Smith, who is the Deputy CEO at Epilepsy Action. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to The Breakfast Show. Good morning. Hi. Hello, Rebecca. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, really a pleasure to have you. Um, can I start off by asking, what is... Um, Epilepsy action, really, what sort of activities, um, although I think the name probably gives out a little bit, um, focuses on? <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are a charity who are here to support people with epilepsy. And uh, we've been doing that for over 70 years now across the UK. And and that really sort of takes the form of a number of services. So we offer helpline, we offer um, virtual and face-to-face groups, counselling, befriending, and also, which is probably more more relevant to what you're talking about today is about um, campaigning about sort of uh, public um, and health issues with the government that are related to epilepsy. So how do you view the recent announcement in the autumn statement by the Chancellor outlining changes to the welfare and uh, employment plans and how do you think this uh, will impact uh, people? Yeah, I mean, you know, on paper, it all sounds sort of very positive in that it's saying there's over a million people in this country who are not working um, for a range of reasons. And a a proportion of those people are not working because they've got some form of long health, a long term health issue or a disability. Um, and, And what they're kind of saying within the statement is that they'll provide more support for people while they are working. Um, and, and that all sounds great, you know, if if that's what happens. And um, I'm, sh- I'm sure we'll come up, um, and talk about some of the things we found out about people who are working with disabilities, um, specifically related to, to epilepsy. But it, it, it's, a, it's a really challenging one because, it, you know, it, it's, we've got to take account of the fact that some people cannot work. And that might be because of the you know extent of their um, disability or health condition. But it might also be because of the type of jobs that they're being offered. Um, those employers just aren't making the kind of um, changes um, that are needed for them to work regularly. So our kind of stance on this is all sounds great if those support packages are put in place for people to work, but the people who genuinely can't work should continue to be supported. Um, And from that, do you think that the government is likely to understand the arguments that you're making to support these people? Um, I think so. Um, You know, I mean, we've we've come up with some quite sort of startling statistics around um, 
you know, we, we did a survey with employers and people who are working with epilepsy. Um, and, you know, there's some real challenging statistics in there. People saying, you know, 40, 42% of employers actually said, even though they knew it was discrimination, that they would avoid giving a person with epilepsy um, a job because they just don't understand it enough. Um, and so they'd be concerned. So I think, you know, our job really as a charity and supporting people is, you know, to sort of highlight these sort of issues to the government and say, all very good, you know, making these sweeping statements, but you've got to provide the packages of support that really make a difference for people working. Right. Thank you. Um, And you have another campaign going on by the name of Make Things Work. Mm. So tell Mm. us a little bit more about it and how it helps people with epilepsy. Yeah, so this is so this is where some of these statistics have come from, um, where we've you know kind of talked to employers, talked to people who um, have epilepsy who are working, um, you know, and it's basically highlighting the fact that there is definite discrimination in the workplace for people with epilepsy and with other um, disabilities, and it, and and so our kind of push is it's a sort of you know two two angles to this. The first is really do the right thing as an employer all you have to do is learn about a disability you know if you understand what epilepsy is it kind of reduces that stigma um and it and it demonstrates how it's actually really easy you know in most cases to make minor adaptations in order for people to work um so there's kind of that side you know is about learning and understanding more and knowing that and, there and are do you think that the em- employers could actually learn about let's say epilepsy or any nature of disability by in fact employing a person with that disability because they would have then the first-hand experience of how it affects and then how they can manage the work. Absolutely. And I think people are scared to say they've got a disability a lot of the time because they don't think they're going to give it, be given a job. So I think mm. employers have got to say that very open to that. And then and, and our big thing is you don't go for a job unless you think you can do it. You know, so if someone's going for a job and they have epilepsy, they clearly feel that they can manage that job and their epilepsy at the same time. So they just need to be given the opportunity to do that. Um, you know, and, and I think I think once we can get to a point where feel, people feel comfortable about talking about it, then it will it will make a real difference, you know, in terms of employing people. Right. And I, my apologies, I interrupted you, but you were going right. to make a second point as well. Yeah, just, you know, the opposite of that is if people aren't prepared to change, you know, we, we do need to sort of take a much more strident um, position um, through things like employment tri- tribunals, um, where we need to be fining companies if they are actively discriminating against people with disabilities. You know, and that is something that just doesn't really happen at the moment. Um, any fines that are, are given out are very low level. So, uh, you know, a lot of um, organisations take the risk and say, well, we, we won't employ someone, and that really shouldn't be the way it works. So we, we do have a petition, which we have on our website, and... Um, as well as, if anyone wants any information on, e- on epilepsy, please have a look at our website um, at epilepsy.org.uk. So from your experience, uh, do such cases where the employer has been in the breach of law mm. um, be taken to the employment tribunal or something? Some, sometimes. So the other thing we um, our survey kind of um, highlighted was that 60% of people who are working with epilepsy 
tend not to avoid actively involve you know avoid any sort of um uh, reporting of discrimination or bullying because they feel like that will mean they'll lose their job so we see people hiding their disability because of that fear but the ones that actually do end up in tribunal very low level fines i think the average fine is around around eighteen thousand pounds um, and these are big companies a lot of the time so you know our call is make it a percentage of a company's turnover and then they will take this issue much more seriously for any disability Right. And lastly, other than the employers, uh, do you think parents, peers Mm. do have a role to play in creating a supportive network for people with epilepsy? Absolutely. I think the one big thing we found, we've just launched a new strategy and the big thing that everybody said to us when um, we talked to them was we need more public awareness of epilepsy. Um, You know, it's still not talked about as openly as other um, health conditions. And when you think that there's one in a hundred of us walking around with epilepsy, you know, it, it isn't something that is talked about enough. So anything anyone can do, whether it's in their school or through their families and friends, and you know, then the more it's talked about, the more it will help um, people understand about the condition. Rebecca, what do you think is is the state's role here, or or, or the the extent of state's responsibility? Um, in terms of in terms of providing support, uh, in terms of providing benefits, in terms of providing yeah. uh, financial uh, benefits. Yeah. I think I think for any you know I think for anyone who's living with a health condition that that means that they cannot work they cannot do any kind of work mm. then you know I I, th- I think the state has to be there we we mm. owe you know we owe it to people um, you know to support them that's what you know that's what makes us the society we are but you know there are also ways to empower people to actually you know provide them with the opportunities to work or to you know to do to do more positive things in their community Um, and that'll only happen if we give people the sort of tools and support packages to do that. So what do you think is really happening here do you think it's it's a lack of prioritization by the government Uh, of course the government has a you know, has a has a laundry list of issues that they need mm-hmm. to uh, to to fund. Uh, so, is it is it that uh, you know this sort of issue, while extremely important, is just not finding, is not resonating with the government yeah, or the current think- government? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think part of this is, you know, that they are kind of almost like leaving it to employers, you know, to sort of try and sort these things out for themselves. Mm. Um, and That's then a they realize, capitalist way of doing it. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I think at some point then they realise, well, hang on a minute, things aren't changing. So maybe we've got to do a bit more. Um, and that's why we keep seeing sort of slight changes to benefit systems, don't we? And, you know, and kind of assessment. But I mean, you know, all I'd say is that there are, there are tools out there already for employers, you know, who are considering employing anyone with a disability. There's an access to work program, which if, you know, if it's a small company, you can actually get subsidies from the government if it's for extra equipment, you know, and, and sort of, you know, things that make it easier for someone to work in your organisation. So there are there are already things out there. I don't think they're promoted enough. Um, and I do think if empl- employers would feel more comfortable if they knew that there was that, those kind of things helping them. Right. Thank you very much, Rebecca.
Thank you. You're really welcome. enjoyed uh, talking to you. Have a lovely you. week ahead and have a lovely Monday as well. Peace uh, be with you. You too. Oh, thank you. Thank Bye. You. Bye. 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 So that was Rebecca Smith, who is the deputy CEO at Epilepsy Action. So if I can put this question to to you, Dr. Shaquille, um, um, the, the the UK government um, is spending billions on the war effort in Ukraine. Um, and yet, uh, every autumn or every March or April, we find that there is some sort of cut to either universal credit or uh, to any other facility that was currently being given to the people um, who need it most um, in this country. We are actually going through uh, one of the worst crises in terms of uh, cost of living um, in modern times. What would you say about this prioritization um, and and how does that fit with, uh, with an Islamic uh, system? Well, I, I think you've touched on a very important point, and I think this is an argument that's uh, uh, put forward by a lot of uh, political um, sections within our country. Um, they do say that Look, rather than focusing on external political ventures, and a lot of them are military strifes, but of other kinds, uh, the charity begins at home. Mm. And that is a, a well-known proverb in English, but also Islamically as well. Um, it fits in with the same principle. So the, 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 the argument that's presented is that there are people who are going hungry, there are people who are unwell and are not being looked after enough, there are people who cannot work and they're, they're finding it very hard, particularly the in these... people are homeless. People are homeless, financial crisis is biting, even those who could afford a few years ago. So why can we not shift our priorities? Mm. And I, I think it's a very valid argument. I, I think that uh, the um, another aspect of it is that in terms of priority, what of the government ventures help people at large and what of the government ventures are potentially harmful for people? And without sounding like a, a critical a critique to the government uh, policies, but I would say that uh, it's very um, to to any mind it would appeal that policies that benefit people is the primary responsibility of the government. The Holy Quran is very clear that a government, when in place, their responsibility is to help the people. Mm-hmm. And the people that they are uh, government governing, but also fellow governments, neighboring countries. So those are the the principles that I think that uh, would be helpful if we applied it to the whole world. It's not just the UK government that ends up being in this strife between international political gain or trying to help the people internally as well as internationally. You know, a lot of countries uh, end up in this difficult situation. And I think that it is more likely to be because of vested interests at some level, either political or business interest. Mm -hmm. Now, we do know that, uh, unfortunately, armament industry is a big industry. Sure. And 
I was reading uh, and finding it interesting and probably very insightful for myself at least that some of the um, military equipment that has been used in the Ukraine-Russia war was in fact being tested. It had developed since the Second World War mm. and had not been tested in battlegrounds and it has been tested or is being tested. <laughs> so there is that aspect to it too. Mm. You see, so mm. you can put two and two together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, people end up suffering on all ends yeah. when there is a big war and when there is uh, these kind of uh, strifes between countries. Very unfortunate. Um, I want to talk to you more about uh, the Islamic solution, especially around the system of zakat in Islam and what that is and um, and how that is implemented and how that was implemented previously um, uh, in the um, in the early. Islamic history as well um, but I would like to um, play a short clip this is from a, a program called Faith Matters and this is about the proper way of paying zakat and is it necessary to paying zakat and gold jewelry and other items uh, so that will set us up nicely for this discussion let's so listen in before you play that do yeah. you want to just to give a one liner of what zakat is sure yeah absolutely yeah, so zakat yeah. is the obligatory uh, alms giving imposed by the Holy Quran onto Muslims. So any person who has some savings beyond their day-to-day -day needs of food and clothing and family needs must contribute this. So it's not just optional for people if they want to contribute, it's obligatory. And uh, even though Quran does not mention a figure or percentage but the figure from the scholars who have um, worked on how it was practiced during the early times of uh, Islamic history have come up with this figure of 2.5% of your savings and we can have the rest of the discussion later. Sure, alright, okay so let's uh, play this clip now and this is once again from a program called Faith Matters and it's about uh, the proper way um, and um, uh, also uh, whether it's necessary to pay it on uh, zakat, that is on jewelry and other items as well. Let's listen in. Key pillars of Islam, which is zakat, and um, I'll come on to a definition of that from one of our panelists in a moment. But her question says, um, what is the proper way to give zakat and is it necessary to pay zakat on gold jewelry? And if so, how would that work, I suppose? But also, is it also compulsory to pay zakat on other items someone may hold? Uh, and Dr. Saab, if I could start with you to begin with. Um, zakat, perhaps if you could just explain what zakat is in its... Well, you've mentioned uh, quite rightly that it is a pillar of Islam, and I think that brings home to everyone the importance of zakat, that Islam is actually based on five pillars and zakat is one of the pillars of Islam, that's the foundation of Islam. So it's an obligation in that respect, but there are conditions to that obligation. Along with the other pillars of Islam, as we know, uh, uh, the salat, the keeping the uh, fasts in the month of Ramadan, pilgrimage to the house of Allah, and the shahada, that's how important it is. So just as uh, our prayers, five daily prayers, salat, is obligatory upon every Muslim, uh, so is keeping fast in the month of Ramadan and pilgrimage to the house of Allah. Zakat also 
is one of the pillars in that sense, and that is that is the importance of zakat. And this was an aspect that we find early from his, history of Islam that the Holy Prophet ﷺ was very particular about uh, for that very reason. The Holy Quran, in in fact, mentions zakat, and always it seems to mention it in in the same breath as prayer, salat. So uh, these it, it it is important in in that respect. Uh, that uh, it, at places it does mention it in, in relation to prayer. So that is uh, the essence of, of zakat in, in that respect. So it is, um, as, as it were, um, a, a levy on wealth that one has, that one, one, uh, it's, it's based upon the levy of wealth that one, one accounts. Mm -hmm. So it accounts for f uh, easy circulation of money and it prevents or it prohibits or discourages the accumulation of wealth so that there should not be differences of uh, society, financial society. So it's from the, from the rich, it is a, 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 a given to the poor in that sense so that there is a connection that is brought about between the rich and poor. And uh, uh, the Promised Messiah in fact has said that it brings out the sympathy in man for the people who are in n not such a good financial state themselves and this brings unity and strength to the body of body of muslims it's interesting that uh, zakat is considered to be very closely linked to the subject of khilafat in fact the holy quran in in the verse of surah nur in surah istikhlaf uh, uh, where khilafat is mentioned and the promise of khilafat is mentioned mm. the next verse actually mentions prayer and zakat mm. and obedience to uh, his prophet and zakat in that sense has been considered to be very closely linked with khilafat and that is what we have seen that after the demise of the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam the Khulafa Rashidin and Hazrat Abu Bakr was very particular about the collection of zakat and that brings to mind the importance of zakat in that sense that this was something that was to continue after the Holy Prophet Sallallahu demise and it is not to stop at that stage as some people had incorrectly interpreted at that time. So in our day and age this is something that we uh, lay great emphasis upon that it is a pillar of Islam, it is an obligation on us as Muslims that we must obviously fulfill this pillar of Islam as we fulfill all the other pillars of Islam. In fact, uh, it's in, uh, practically speaking, uh, if you just look at a receipt book that is given by the Jamaat for our contributions, the first column on that is always zakat and that obviously highlights for us the importance of zakat that every Ahmadi Muslim is required to pay, pay zakat to that sense. As we said there, there, there are conditions as to when it becomes uh, applicable um, and there is a minimum amount um, that has been reported uh, an amount of silver uh, something in the region of 614.25 grams of silver, uh, I believe, uh, which actually if one has uh, jewelry or gold or other 
uh, ornaments to, of that uh, value or higher above that, then zakat becomes so there payable. Is a threshold there is a there is a threshold payable. absolutely. It it can be a complex matter in certain degrees. Mm -hmm. So therefore, the, the, it is it, it is an issue that can be easily solved by the the community in that anybody who uh, wishes to find out what the levy is, then they can obviously approach the community. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, under the auspices of the Khalifatul Masih, we have an organization in the Jamaat who is able to cater for this and actually work out exactly what the um, amount of zakat is payable. And people pay that zakat so that they fulfill this obligation of... of so just one question, further question on that. And I think Aisha Saib also asked this. There is this culture, if you like, or this... Uh, convention which some people subscribe to, whereby if you're wearing it, then you're not paying anything on it. Um, although it would suggest that you have images of gold-laden ladies sort of going out with five or six pieces of ornaments on because by wearing it they're actually defined, which I suppose defeats the logic of why you should pay it anyway. That's, that's, yeah. that's true. I mean, you see, accumulated wealth can be that wealth that you don't actually have in use. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, if for instance, the uh, women is, is wearing part of her normal makeup, is mm -hmm. part of jewelry, and uh, she wears that, that, then that is part of her daily usage mm -hmm. rather than accumulation of wealth. However, it is interesting to note that the Promised Messiah has actually highlighted this point, but he has said, my family pays zakat on all the ornaments that they have, whether they wear it or not wear it. Mm -hmm. And that is, he has said, the best way to fulfill your obligation to Jamaat. Mm -hmm. So it is the spirit of it, and it is the uh, wisdom behind it that one must always realize so that zakat should be paid according to that directive as well. Jazakumullah. I, I think that's, again, very clear. It's a fundamental of Islam, and uh, there is no deviation from its importance, indeed, it's something, as Dr. Saab has illustrated, a key part of one's faith um, and a fundamental within Islam and the Amdiya Muslim community is no exception. Right, so that was a clip from um, a program called Faith Matters in which the panelists were talking about Zakat and um, uh, both the definition of Zakat and the importance of Zakat and uh, um, as well as what um, uh, what are the prescribed uh, payments for zakat? Um, the um, it, it, as as, I, as mentioned in this uh, clip as well, this is a prescribed contribution and it's based on person's wealth and income. Um, it works out to about two and a half percent of the total value um, of the wealth, and the proceeds of zakat are supposed to be devoted towards relieving poverty and distress, helping those in debt, providing comfort and convenience to travelers, providing stipends for scholarships, providing ransom for prisoners of war even, uh, for the propagation of faith, meeting the expenses of, um, of those who are actually collecting um, zakat, and any other thing which is actually beneficial um, for a society and therefore this is actually a duty which has been enjoined by God in the Quran um, for all Muslims who um, are actually um, can pay um, zakat um, and uh, you know that brings me back to the discussion that we were having Dr. Shaquille about uh, uh, about why zakat um, and um, how important it is to have a system like zakat to create a, a, a 
a welfare state, which is what uh, Islam espouses for. You mentioned um, um, a while back um, two caliphs, two early caliphs of um, uh, of the Muslim community. The first caliph, Hazrat Abu Bakr, and the second caliph, Hazrat, uh, Hazrat Umar. Um, Hazrat uh, Abu Bakr uh, didn't uh, live very long and um, uh, he was busy um, trying to to, um, uh, to put order in um, or create order within the society. But Hazrat Umar actually played a significant role in creating the first modern uh, or, or the first, I should say, uh, version of a welfare state. Um, can you talk briefly about what was it that, um, uh, th- that was really done in his period to create that atmosphere of a welfare state? Sure. Um, But I would say, I would begin by saying that the concept of welfare state, which means uh, responsibility of the government to look after the needy amongst the people, is given by the Holy Quran, so which was revealed to the Holy Prophet, peace be on him. And therefore, and when the Holy Prophet had migrated from Mecca to Medina following the persecution by the Meccans, and began to establish a government in Medina, the principles of the welfare state began to be implemented during the life of the Holy Prophet, Hmm. may peace be on him. So there were financial aspects to it, looking after the needy, stipends were initiated for those who were unable to fend for themselves Hmm. or were needy or for orphans or widows. Hmm. Indeed, the system of Zakat was actually set up during his time. Exactly. Just right. like in the clip that you have played, okay. Dr. Zayed Khan has explained that it was, uh, it is one of the fundamental pillars of Islam, right. and uh, you can't be a Muslim if you do not recognize the importance of zakat or don't right. contribute to it because you are uh, breaking one of the pillars right. of uh, Islam. So that's when it began. But you are also right in saying that the establishment of the welfare system just like the establishment of the rest of the governance systems gradually developed because the Islamic uh, domain was increasing. So during the life of the Prophet, peace be on him, mostly it was the Arabian Peninsula that had become Muslim. And then gradually the, the area where people embraced Islam and accepted and became part of the Muslim empire was increasing and therefore the need of more developed systems and governance. Hmm. Um, Hazrat, uh, when the Prophet, peace be on him, passed away, in fact some of the distant tribes who had become Muslim decided to stop paying the zakat. Hmm. Hmm. And Hazrat Abu Bakr had the option of how to question raised in his uh, executive committee Mm. or his shura, the the consultative body, as to how to deal with it. And he was very clear that this is one of the injunctions from the God Almighty. Mm. It is one of the pillars of Islam. Mm. So we cannot be lax with it. Mm. We cannot let people decide whether they want to pay Mm. charity or not. It is not an option. Mm. If you've got your savings, you've got to pay zakat. And that links it to the subject of our discussion today, which is about the welfare state Mm. and the welfare systems even in the modern world. Mm. And what we argue is that zakat is one of the systems that can contribute to answer a lot of issues of 
the uh, economic issues of the people or the financial hardships of the needy. Mm. Because like you read out earlier, very helpfully, zakat is focused for those in need, mm. for the poor, for the needy, for the orphans, for all those kind of uh, things, mm. health and education of those who cannot afford it. Mm. Um, in addition to zakat, the founder of the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam, the promised Messiah, salam, initiated the system of wasiyat, mm. which is also uh, something that you make a decision to join. As an Ahmadi Muslim, we need to pay 6% of our income as a contribution mm. towards Jamaat work, mm. which includes welfare for the needy. Mm. So Jamaat is known for its movements like Nusrat Jahan and Humanity First initiations to establish hospitals, schools, uh, water wells, electricity, mm. solar panels, all those things where it's needed. Mm. Even in the developed parts of the world, Jamaat has contributed when there are floods and hurricanes and disaster relief, right. in yeah. other words. The, the community, Ahmadiyya Muslim yes. community. Yeah? The Ahmadiyya Muslim community, that's right. right. Um, so, but financially speaking, if the institution of zakat and wasiyat are established in the world, let's say even if 50% of the world population joined this mm. two financial institutions, mm. and at the same time we were able to establish the banking based on Islamic principles, which allows your individual initiative, but prohibits usury and interest, then you can in fact solve the the major problem financial problems of the world the reason being that the usury and interest in the modern banking in fact drains the wealth from the poor towards the rich hmm. the rich can lend and therefore get more in return from those who borrowed this is usury isn't yeah. it yeah. and that is why every now and then we see when there are times of recession, there are uh, bankruptcies and redundancies and, uh, you mm. know, what you call it, when possessions, repossessions of mm. the properties, people can't afford to keep paying their mortgages, etc. It is a very clear evidence that the poor find it harder to survive in this system compared to the rich. And the rich are becoming richer. It's a well-known fact. And the gap between the poor and the rich is increasing. Turn it the other way around. Obligatory 2.5% as zakat. Those who make the decision to join the wasiyat, they pay 10% mm. of the income minimum, mm. but they can voluntarily increase it up to 33% maximum. Mm. And this is people who are paying primarily for the sake of the benefit of those who need. Hmm. So actually, I'm reminded. So, sorry to interrupt. I'm reminded actually of uh, of an interview that I did uh, a few months ago of um, uh, the spokesperson from um, from UNICEF, and she mentioned that. Uh, sorry, it was World Food Program, and she mentioned that to erag eradicate child hunger in Africa, all WHO, WHO needs is thirty billion dollars a year. So if WHO needed had $30 billion a year, um, child hunger in Africa could be totally eliminated. And I just Googled the wealth of, uh, you mentioned in your discussion, 50% of the world. I Googled the wealth of the top 10 billionaires. 
in the world. And that, and I just Googled and, and just added up some numbers. Um, um, and the number came up to be about $1,100 billion. That's the amount of wealth of just 10 people in the world. 2.5% of that is almost $30 billion. Yes. You know, that's $30 billion right there uh, to, erag- to eradicate one of the biggest problems we have in, in, in modern world today. Um, so that's the kind of solution we're talking about. And that's the practical application of, um, of Islamic injunctions. Yes, true. Um, the, the, the challenge will be how do we convince those top 10 billionaires sure. to contribute. Obviously. Um, but if a principle was established, right. then, you know, it, it becomes obligatory. That's the difference rather than making a choice of doing it. Um, another, I think, very important Islamic injunction is that the natural resources are to be considered as of common heritage for mankind. So even though we have split up national, we have split up our land, our planet, into national boundaries, and we then claim that this is our resource, this is our cultivation, uh, our minerals, our oil, and we fight over it with each other. But according to the Holy Quran, the principle is that the natural resources which is not produced by an industry established in a particular part of the country or anywhere in the world, the natural resources are of common heritage. Yeah. And the, the governance of the world, so organizations like United Nations, they aren't strong enough, but they should be able to implement fair and equal distribution of those resources to those who are needy. Mm. So talking about the point of hunger in Africa, mm. you, you and I know that countries like ours, Britain, has surplus uh, produce mm. from their uh, farming every year, and so much so that sometimes their storage is not uh, safe, and they have to d- uh, deposit it and waste it in the seas. Mm. Now, what kind of governance mm. is this on this planet mm. where so many people yeah. die of hunger yeah. while others have surplus and they throw it in the sea? Absolutely. So that's the imbalance that we need to address. 100%. Thank you very much um, for that, Dr. Shakir. We are coming towards the end of uh, this show today. And let me end by quoting from the Promised Messiah, who was the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Um, And he said, Serving humanity is itself a form of worship of God. At another place, he said, My state is such that if someone is in distress, is in distress, whilst I'm engaged in the obligatory prayers, and I hear their grief, it is my ardent desire to break the prayer and to try to help that person and to shower them with as much love as possible. Thank you very much for joining us today. News is next.